Hello, you're listening to the Wheel Talk podcast. We're here to talk about the Tour de France Femme avec Zwift. It's coming up really soon. My name is Abby Mickey. I'm joined by Matt Denif for the final time in the studio before we record on the ground live in France. Oh yeah, so excited. So excited to get over there and get stuck into the race and actually podcast in person. We we haven't, we've done, what, how many podcasts together? So many podcasts together, but haven't met in person. So I'm looking forward to that and the uh, the race is going to be so, so good. Yeah, I wonder if we can sneak a little bit of like album files in, in the middle, talk a little bit about, just without Ian, we'll just like do a little bit of on the yeah. ground album filesing. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good to me. Mandatory album files uh, plug there. Nobody knows what we're talking about. Anyway. <laughs> Joining us for this preview today, I'm super excited that we have Amanda Spratt back. You talked to us about the Vuelta, and that was super cool. So I was like, oh, I wonder if we can get you back for the tour. And here you are. Hello. Yeah, thanks. Hi. Um, Thanks for having me back. I guess I did an okay job last time. So happy to be back and talking about this little race coming up. Just a tiny race, really like inconsequential, insignificant. Not really that big. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, we haven't been focusing on it all year, so... No, no, no. Not at all. It's crazy to me. It's crazy, but it also is not that the race, this is only the second edition of the Tour de France Femme of Zwift or kind of the Tour de France in this new age of women's cycling where we have live coverage and like a lot more resources going to the women's peloton that the race has really taken on this life of its own in women's cycling. Like last year, I think that there wasn't, there was a lot of hype around it, but it wasn't yet like this massive thing that kind of like shadowed over the entire women's calendar. And this year it really feels like it is very similar to the men's in that the entire season up to this point has been building up to the tour and people really structured their entire seasons, whether or not they were doing the tour, they structured their entire season around the tour. Yeah, I think, I think so. I think like last year, as you said, it was the first one we'd had. So there was a lot of excitement, but not really knowing exactly how it was going to go. Um, but I think it exceeded everybody's expectations last year, just even in terms of like the crowd that just built every day, um, the support we had, the, the fans, you know, how much it just built day by day, I think was something that was really special and something that really helped build the race. And I think also we really feel like they're taking us seriously. And when we, the course, the proposed this year, you know, we asked for a time trial, they've added a time trial. We're racing up the Tourmalet, which has to be, I think, one of the most famous climbs in, in cycling, um, so that's just an incredible, I mean, yeah, I went and reconned that with Elisa Longo Borghini and we just wrote up that and thought, wow, just imagine how much history has happened on this climb um, and now we're going to be part of that. So I think, yeah, just the courses that they're making and how seriously they're, they're taking it um, and we can really see it as an event that is going to grow really quickly. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said with how much the the organizers and Zwift put into the race and how passionate they are about women's cycling and and uh, Kate I've talked to Kate from Zwift on the podcast she uh, sent in an audio clip for a couple episodes ago where they're really passionate about growing the amount of stages and growing the race to kind of live up to the expectations of the Tour de France and I think like even in their second year they're definitely doing that and yeah I'm excited to see how the race goes this year because last year. I feel like one of the reasons that the race was so good last year was because the courses that they put together were just amazing. And the way that they built on each other was really cool. And I think this year it will, it's kind of similar in that the GC is really going to wait until the final two stages, but there's also a lot of opportunities for some exciting racing up to that point and the six stages up to that point. So I think it's going to be, yeah, I'm so excited. Me too. Should we talk about the stages? Yeah, I'm sure we're going to. Yeah, let, let's do that. I was going to just add something about how the GC might be shaped, but I think we'll get to it as we get to these stages here. I think the GC is, I mean, there's just like so much. Okay, let's get into it. Stage one, we're not starting in Paris this year. Last year, the women started on the Champs as the men were finishing, but this year they're starting in, I'm going to butcher every single like name <laughs> of every town. <laughs> Like I should have asked Jose to send me audio clips of how to pronounce every single town before we did the preview, but I didn't, but I will for the daily podcast. So don't worry, everyone who's listening, hopefully I do better then. So, um, 
Claremont Ferrand is where the first stage starts and finishes, which is where the men's 11th stage started. So it's still kind of touching on where the men's tour went this year with that, with some of the towns that we go through. And this first stage looks pretty interesting for a first stage of the tour. There's it's relatively flat all the way through with a couple like uncategorized ups and downs. And then a category three, 1.77 kilometers long, 7.2% average nine ish K from the finish. So it's interestingly placed this category three climb because while you'd expect the first stage to be a sprint stage, it's definitely, that's going to be kind of hard for any pure sprinters to get over. And I think a lot of riders who are opportunistic and maybe a little bit gutsy will be eyeing that category three climb and thinking that they can take the first yellow jersey of the race. Yeah, I really hope we see some action on that climb. And I think we will, whether or not it comes, uh, whether or not it has the effect of um, the winner coming from that moment, I don't know. But we're bound to see some attacks there. And I'm interested, Abby, would you put Lorena Webus in the category of pure sprinters that will struggle to get over this climb? Absolutely Because you wrote not. in your preview that, she, yeah, I think she's probably the favorite for the stage still, right? I mean, the way that she wrote up that climb on stage, was it six or seven of the Giro to take second behind Van Vluten, who was solo? She was like, I mean, just attacking that climb. And it was an incredible second place for her, almost more impressive than the first place finisher. And I feel like going into this, what's interesting about this stage, I think in terms of Webus, is that her main rival for this stage is her teammate, Lada Kopecky, who is also like a sprinter, but really good at short poppy climbs. And I feel like the two of them together, if they like work together on this, it's, it's almost a terrifying thought. Yes, I can second that terrifying thought, thinking of those two at that, <laughs> that point of the race. But, yeah, I mean, I agree that I think this is going to be a hard final, but I do think it's stage one of the tour. It's There's a yellow jersey up for grabs. Everyone's coming in fresh. These are often the hardest and the most stressful stages as well, and they're sort of um, stages that I think really suit Webus, Kopecky, um, Charlotte Cool, I think is the other really interesting one to talk about in terms of sprinting. And she might be one that will struggle a bit on that final climb, but afterwards we do have quite a fast descent and it's really fast in into the town. And we do know that DSM are very good at working together as a team in that scenario. So uh, I do think it's going to end up being a sprint, simply just being the first stage and yellow jersey up for grabs. There's so much at stake. Have you reconned that climb, Spready? I haven't reconned it. So, no, I've only actually reconned in person the the final two stages with Elisa, but Ina, our director, she's been out and reconned most of the other stages for us. So we do know it's a solid climb, but we know it's very fast um, afterwards. So I think it's a categorised climb. There's also a polka dot jersey up for grabs. So for sure people will want to try and be the first person in the polka dots as well. So that's going to make it hard. Um, but I think a lot of it will come down to your position into it as well and how much, how, you know, far you can get into it. So I think that's as well where we just will do a really good job. That's a really good point about the jersey at the top, you know, because you won't just see people going for the stage, but you also see a bunch of riders that are, that only want to get that jersey. And yeah, it's going to be a pretty cool fight, I think. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think like teams like Canyon Stram, for example, they always love to get a jersey and be on the podium each day. And we've, we always see them sort of chasing the sprint jersey or the, the polka dot jersey. And I think with that jersey in particular, they have a very good chance. Yeah, Shabby, she loves those polka dot jerseys. <laughs> yes, that's who I'm thinking of. <laughs> <laughs> so the second stage, we start again in Claremont Ferrand. Awesome for anyone who uh, has to transfer from stage one to stage two. And it goes to Moriac. Sorry. And then does a loop and finishes in the town. This one is a little bit hillier with four category four climbs, one category two and one category three, but none of them are super long. The longest one is the category two, a category two at 4.5 kilometers long, but it's only 5.5%. There's some steeper parts in there, but it's still nothing insane. And all of the category four climbs are roughly like 6.6. 7.2 like they're a little bit steeper and then it fi- finishes on that category three climb 3.4 kilometers long so this is a super interesting second stage i feel like looking at this it's very much like a classics style course with a bunch of short poppy climbs but it starts out with like a 32 kilometer long climb 
before they even kind of start the the shorter climbs. It's it's like basically just it's uncategorized, but for the first 32-ish K, the profile goes up. So that's gonna make it a really hard stage, I think. And it's 151.7 kilometers long. So it's long on uh, by women's standards. Yeah, definitely. I think um uh yeah, it's definitely long, and I think it, and from the start, it's quite tricky in terms of a lot of these stages, we're not racing on the big French roads. We're actually doing a lot of the stages take place on those sort of small, um, sort of more country roads. So I think that's another part, especially of this stage, it's going to make it quite stressful in that a lot of it are on those small roads where positioning's key. Yes, there are climbs, but a lot of the time after the climbs, we're straight into small technical downhills, straight into the next climb. So I feel like... Um, these stages are the ones where if you're in good position, you're saving a lot of energy. But if you're a rider that's um, struggles a bit with position or can't sort of hold your own, then you're going to be constantly sort of battling to move up, move up, um, close gaps. So I think whilst it's only stage two, I think all those in terms of looking at the general classification, like those sort of energy zapping moments can will sort of affect the overall, I think, Um and I think the final is actually very hard. We have a quite a fast downhill into that final climb. It's three and a half K they're saying, but it's sort of three and a half K climb, a little bit flat, and then it climbs up 800 metres to the finish again. So I don't think it's a sprint stage. I think we're looking at sort of more, like you said, Abby, like the classics type riders. I think even someone like Liana Lippert could be a good one for this stage, although we'll have to see if Annemiek lets her go for the stage or not. Um yeah, I'm not, not sure how that or that'll play out. We saw in the Vuelta, Liana didn't get much freedom, so um, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think it's it's probably harder than what it looks on paper. I wonder if Demi will take the yellow jersey already at this stage in the race, or if that's. I mean, it looks like something based on how she's been riding this year and how she rode in the Ardennes. It looks like something that she would excel at. I think definitely, or even Lotta Kopecky, like if, as we said before of a stage one, if Weavis isn't there, then Kopecky's going to be there. So it is a sort of stage where maybe Kopecky could survive. Um, it'd be interesting to see how they play it if they, if they wait to see if Kopecky gets over it or if they go full gas from the bottom and try to already thin it out and have that jersey. But I think, as you mentioned at the start, like for sure the GC is going to be made in the last two stages, but there are so many opportunities to sort of gain time, gain seconds throughout throughout the stage throughout the stages, and this is also one of um, three stages where we actually have time bonuses out on the road, six, four, and two seconds um, hmm. for a sprint. Um, so I think that will also to come into play as well. Uh, one of the questions I have is, how's Anamik van Vluten going to handle it? Because we saw at the Giro that she wasn't interested in waiting around until the last few stages to take the lead. You know, she was the first road stage. She was on the attack and, and moving into the, the lead. So I know there's the the specter of the the tourmalade looming over the race, and there'll be big gaps there on the penultimate day. But I wonder if she's going to try and get ahead of the race early on, and maybe that small climb on the first stage is too early. But this stage, you know, I wouldn't be shocked to see her go on the move on one of these late climbs. No, I totally agree, and I think knowing knowing her and having raced with her, I think she'll look at these first stages and feel like a little bit stressed. She's not the calmest racer out there. Um, she definitely would prefer to have a nice long climb in the first couple of stages where she could already give herself a nice little buffer or sort of um, um, thin down the amount of contenders she has to sort of go against. And that's sort of what we saw her, uh, I guess, her tactic was at the Giro. So I think, I think you might, you're right. That I think we can expect to see her make a move or even perhaps on that final climb. If we say, if we see, for example, Liana Lippert sent to work very, right from the very bottom to set up Anamik, then we know straight away, okay, she's nervous, she's stressed, this is an opportunity. So I think, yeah, a lot of that we'll have to see on the road, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised to see her try to make the most of it already. How nice is it to be going into a race and having like one of your biggest competitors be someone you know so well? Um, it's always, it's always nice. I think a little bit of an advantage or, um, yeah, I guess, you know, a little bit the way they operate and you know, that they'll look at some of these stages and just think, oh gosh, I can't wait until that stage is over. And, you know, now Annemiek has to wait to stage seven before she can potentially do what we think she's going to do, which is basically go from the bottom of the Aspen. So sure. We'll talk about that in a little bit, but, um, it's always comforting to know a little bit more. Um, sometimes nerve wracking when the person is Annemiek van Vluten, but, um, <laughs> I think it has to have been an advantage at some point. I, I think it's interesting talking about Annemiek and also talking about what's to come in the rest of the race and the second stage in that 
we know after the Vuelta that Demi was climbing better than Anamique. So I think that that would also make her want to do something earlier in the race and not wait until the Tourmalet, where usually I think she would wait until the Tourmalet. But looking at this second stage but and also stage five to come, that she's... I don't think she's going to wait at all. I think she's going to, or stage four, sorry. I think she's going to want to get time on on Demi before they get to the final two stages. Stage three looks like, I'm jumping ahead, but stage three from Colonia La Rouge. Oh, fuck. I feel like I shouldn't even say the names. Montignac. <laughs> uh, nope, I'm not even going to say it. So stage three, 147 kilometers long. I'll, I'll have the names down by the daily podcasts. I promise you. Looks like your pretty typical sprint stage. There's four climbs throughout the day. The first is a category three pretty early in the stage. 27.2 kilometers into the stage is when it, they hit the top of that one. 4.8 kilometers long, so nothing insane. And then three more cap fours, but they end with 92. They end at 92 kilometers, and then it's a pretty flat run into the line. So it looks like your standard sprint stage for stage three. Yeah, definitely. And if we didn't already see a battle between Webus and Charlotte Cool on the first stage, then we're probably going to see it this stage. And I think that's one of the really exciting matchups for this race. Um, you know, you obviously would put Webus as the better sprinter out of the two, but if you look at the two of them head to head in sprint finishes where they've both been there this season, they're actually tied this season with one. Oh, sorry, two wins each. So I think those two going up against each other is is really fascinating and. I'm looking forward to that and hopefully we get that on stage three. We also, Cool also has arguably a better lead out because while SD Works maybe has a stronger team on paper, they're so focused on Demi for the overall that I think DSM will, while they have Juliet for the overall, they probably are more confident about winning stages with Cool. So I think that most of their team will be dedicated to getting Cool to the line. Um, instead of focusing on the yellow jersey. Still, lead out of Rusa plus Kopecky is still pretty nice. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind sprinting off that train just quietly. That depends. You can be the strongest rider in the race and still have a terrible lead out. Like, you you could be Rusa and still, like, not be able to do a lead out. It's totally, that's totally a thing. Amanda, back me up. Amanda, Spratty, yeah. back me up. Oh, God, you just said Amanda. <laughs> this conversation, that's when I know the conversation is getting far too serious. <laughs> <laughs> no but you're right but i do i do believe in the the lead out the dsm have especially having i think megan drastrap i'm not sure if she's racing i've seen her on a provisional start list anyway um but pfeiffer georgie i think is turning into one of the best in the business in terms of lead outs and, and positioning and and even if she has to position behind sd works and then come out at the last minute cool i think that's already proven quite successful so i think for sure they're going to be it's going to be a big battle between those two teams on this stage in particular Stage four is, I mean, this is the one I think that Anamique is going to really enjoy just because of the length. She's one of the riders in the peloton that just loves a long, riding her bike for like a ridiculously long amount of time. It's 177 kilometers long, which is the longest stage of, in a women's stage race since last year's tour. Only, I think, two or three kilometers long than the longest stage of last year's tour, but that was a stage that... I think it's safe to say um, was controversial in that like a lot of the Peloton wasn't super happy about the longer stage. And there was a massive crash with 40 kilometers to go in that stage um, that took out a couple riders like Emma Norsgaard broke her collarbone in that crash. Um, so it's an interesting one. And I think what makes it more fascinating than last year's long stage is that halfway through the stage, it starts to really kick. There's, a, a category four and then a three and then a two and then a three right before the finish and those the three two three are really lumped close together plus there's a bonus second climb in the middle of the three and the two so there's a lot going on in the back end of this stage that I think will make it where last year's really long stage was maybe flatter and had more uh, potential for being boring the back end of this stage pretty much guarantees action. And I think maybe the profile isn't something that Anamique would normally like look at and be like, okay, this is for me. But given the heat and the amount of fatigue that will be in the legs at this point 
with that long of a stage, I don't know. I feel like I've marked this stage for her, whether I'm wrong yeah. or not. Yeah, I think as a writer, I look at all the stages of the tour and I think this is the hardest stage. I think, of course, you can say stage seven is hard, but this stage is complicated. And as you said, Abby, it's 177K. We actually had 8K of neutral before that, so 185K. Um, and, yeah, as you said, the all of those climbs are bunched into the final 40 kilometres almost. Um, they're bunched into the final 40 kilometres. The roads are extremely narrow there as well tricky as you said it's kind of climb into sprint into downhill into climb into downhill into climb into yeah it's just like it's on it's like constantly on so I think the back door of the peloton is going to be open there'll be people exiting all throughout or throughout that point and then as if it's not already hard enough we then finish with a really steep climb up to the finish I think it's over 10 percent um the men have actually finished on, on it a couple of times with Michael Matthews and Greg Van Avermaet have both won on the same finish so that maybe tells you the sort of rider in the men's field that's winning on this very final thing but I totally agree that I think this is where Anamink's going to make a move that makes me feel really confident about my my abilities <laughs> to <bring you> a <laughs> race. but I think it is it is going to be a numbers game at this point I think we're on this stage we're really going to see the teams that have um depth in the GC roster and who have multiple riders that can be there in this sort of hard classics because there needs to be riders that are good at climbing that are very good technically and that have that sort of endurance as well because this is day four we've just had three well the first stage and then two quite long and hard days as well so I think you're really going to see the fittest riders come into the four as well um and yeah this is a stage I think you said last year there was a big crash in the longer stage and I think as well the level of fatigue at this point people are going to make mistakes in this stage too so I think positioning is just going to be such a crucial thing in those last 40K in particular. Matt, were you going to say something before I cut you off? I was just going to make a stupid joke about um, the fact that there's a Cat 4 climb with 160Ks to go and that it's a perfect launching pad for Anamik to go. Um, that's it. <laughs> we can move on. Uh, uh, all right. Stage 5 is from Annette Le Chateau to Albi. And there's a good bit of uncategorized climbing in it, two category threes and a cat four. And then it's pretty flat, like downhill run into the finish. So I think after stage four and how hard it is, I feel like this stage is the first stage where I'm like, all right, this is a potential breakaway stage, but it's also the tour. And we didn't see a single breakaway succeed in the Giro. So I'm less confident in a breakaway being successful at the tour, but I think that this stage looks like it's not going to be super hard based on the profile, but I think that there will be a lot of riders trying to get up the road. So I think it's going to be a lot harder than it looks and then come down to a sprint. For me, it's quite interesting in that sort of middle or the second third, I guess, of the stage in terms of kilometer 70 to 90, because there we do have quite a few hard climbs. So it could be a scenario where the, the group really thins down and then we come more to that sort of reduced bunch sprint or, again, maybe, is, maybe it is the perfect launching pad there for like a late break to get to the line. So I think it'll be sort of touch and go as to whether it's going to come back for a bigger bunch sprint or whether it's sort of a reduced group or a small break at the finish. You know who loves like one of these late stage little climbs that can launch into into a move is um, Elisa Langeborghini. She could be the one. My lips are sealed. <laughs> I'm, I'm not. No one can see me, but I'm. I'm nodding. <laughs> <laughs> there. Um. This is one of the stages where there's bonus seconds available, and they're at the top of a what looks to be a, a climb. I don't know. Um. If that is much of a climb there, but I, I'm not sure that the bonus seconds are going to make much of a difference by the end of the race. But it could be interesting to see if they have an impact on who's wearing yellow throughout the race, whether there's a bit of a battle in those, you know, the first five, six stages for yellow. And if we do see a bit of action on those climbs as well. Yeah. Cause the, the race for yellow at the end of the race is, is one thing, but it's, you wear the yellow Jersey for one day and it can be career changing. So it's not like, mm. it's, it's not like we're going to see riders sit back and wait for the final two stages to fight for the yellow Jersey. It's going to be a fight from the very first stage to the very last stage about who wears it every single day. 
Like Mariana Voss wearing yellow in last year's tour was a, a year long highlight, I think, for people watching. And it's going to be the same for pretty much every single rider in the race has dreamed of wearing yellow at least one time in their <laughs> life, like even before this race existed. So I think it's going to be, yeah, I think you're right, Matt. I think every single bonus second is going to come into play, even up until the tourmalay. Mm. Uh, Anamik will do her thing and she'll probably go on the attack early, but I sort of hope for the sake of the contest that she waits. It'd be nice to have a bunch of different riders get into yellow in the first five or six days and we see some new names there and we do have these interesting battles rather than Anamik being 30 seconds to a minute clear of the field, you know, by the first few stages. So, yeah, here's, ho- here's hoping for a, uh, a tight battle. I think I think it will be a tight battle in terms of like what we saw in the Giro is that Anamik was a class above really in the long climbs. So what she's really good at are those long climbs where she can pace it and ride pit off the wheel, like 5K more sort of climbs, those sort of climbs, whereas I think once you make the climbs less than 5K shorter, then it's it, it's not a level playing field, but there are more riders that can keep up with her or um, even be better than her as we saw with Damie in the Ardennes. So I think... In that respect, we don't really have any long climbs until we get to that sort of tourmalay Aspen stage. So I do think, Matt, that it will be much tighter than 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 what we're thinking. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. <laughs> stage six from Albi to Blagnac. That doesn't sound right. That sounds like something out of a Harry Potter Blagnac. novel. <laughs> Thanks. <Matt. laughs> uh, looks to me to be the second surefire sprint stage of the race. There's four category fours throughout the day, and the longest of them is 2.8 kilometers long, relatively like f- they're 4.5%, 4.8%, 6%, one of them. But I think that because the final 20, 30K is pretty flat, that this is a stage that there are a lot of strong sprinters lining up in the race and they're, they have fewer chances I think than they would have liked. And so I think that this stage, especially with the two stages to come will be a sprint stage. Yeah, I agree. I think it's, it's, it's the, it's the last chance for the sprinters in the Tour de France. So, and it's the flattest stage we have, I think. So I think so. And it builds perfectly into stage seven, which is, I think I wrote in my preview the the one we've all been waiting for the tourmalay and it's not just the tourmalay it's the as you said Spratty the cold aspen is right before it a category one and that descends straight into the bottom of the tourmalay 17.1 kilometer long climb of 7.5 percent but there's like some 16 percent grades in there it gets really steep at points so it's it's going to be a super hard stage and it yeah I mean it it's like dumb to say, but the GC will probably be decided on this stage. Yeah. And Spratty, you mentioned it earlier and I mentioned it last week as well. I think anybody that has any sort of GC ambitions has to be looking at the bottom of the cold span. I think if you look at how Anamique attacked last year on stage seven, she went what three climbs before the finish and only Demi could go with her. And then on the second last one, she was on her own. I think an attack from the bottom of the cold span is likely to happen. And I think then we'll probably find out whether Demi can go with her and for how long and, and how those two match up. And I'm I'm fascinated to hear your take on that, Spratty, how those two line up against each other on these big, big climbs. Yeah, I think yeah, I think we've all said it, haven't we? It's going to light up from the bottom of that dustbin, cold dustbin, however we say that. Um, and that's a 12K climb. Um, yeah, I do believe Anamik has to go from the bottom of that. It's just the descent, then there's just the tourmalay. Um, I think Demi has definitely stepped up in every area this year. So I really expect it's going to be a big battle, especially between those two. But I think not just those two. I think there are other people, like, for example, Juliette Labou really showed, I think, during the Giro that she was getting stronger every day. So it's an interesting one. Elisa Longo-Borghini as well. Um, but, of course, everyone's looking at Anamik and, and Demi, and they know that that's where the, the biggest battle uh, will be. Um, and I think Amamik will be worried about Demi. Honestly, I think last year she sort of went into the tour and after one climb she knew, okay, I'm the strongest. Whereas this year I think she will be more worried about Demi and what she can do. And also looking ahead to the time trial, I think normally in the past Amamik has been the stronger time trialist of the two, but 
even looking at the Dutch National Championship time trial, for example, we raced the Tour of Swiss for four days and Demi, we finished at 6pm, Demi got in a camper van and and drove back to Holland, arrived at 4am and raced the Dutch Nationals the next day and beat Annemiek by 20 seconds. So essentially day five on no sleep. So I think that'll be in the back of Annemiek's head that she needs to make the most of this stage in particular to try and maximise her time gain, or that's how she'll want to see it, that she wants to use every kilometre of road that she can to to make that advantage. So it's going to be fascinating. My legs are sort of screaming thinking about it already. Um, this is probably <laughs> the stage I'm most looking forward to, but at the same, it's sort of terrifying to think how painful it's going to be. Um, but, yeah, it's going to be – I still think it will be interesting because the bottom of the Tourmalet, we sort of come off the descent of the Aspen, and then the first 5K of the Tourmalet is not really – climbing yet like it is but it's not it's kind of that awkward gradient where if you're sitting in the wheel you can actually get a lot of advantage versus being on the front so that's going to be interesting if the two of them come down there and then they work together they don't work together like animate just sitting on the front and trying to ride Demi off her wheel that's only going to be an advantage for Demi at that point so it'd be interesting the dynamic there and what's going to happen um and for Damie as well, someone like Rooster, I think they're going to keep, try to keep her in the GC contention for as long as possible to put pressure on um, on Annemiek as well. So it'll be interesting if she survives the Aspen and can come into the Tourmalet with Damie as well. So say the, two, say, say the two of them do get to the bottom of the Tourmalet together, who wins the stage? Oh, gosh. I... God, it's so hard to call this year. Like last year it would be much easier mm. to just see just say Annemiek, but... Um, I think the way Damie's been climbing this year, um, I think it's hard to go past Damie. I know Annemiek showed that she's in really good form in the Giro. We saw that. Um, but, I mean, every time there's been a matchup with Annemiek versus Damie this year, I think Damie's come out on top almost every time. So purely based on that, <laughs> I'm going to try not to be Switzerland and be all neutral. I'm going to have to say I'll go with, I'll go with Damie. <laughs> I, I think there's been a lot made about those two especially going into the tour and how both of them are coming into the tour on completely separate paths with Anamique racing the Giro and Demi coming to altitude, training at altitude instead and kind of focusing purely on the tour. But are there any other riders that you think will be able to contest on this stage? Um, yeah, I was really excited about my own teammate, Elisa Longo, Borghini in the Giro before obviously she sadly crashed out on that stage. But I really think that she's probably in the form of her life at the moment. Like what I saw in the Giro, I was obviously training with her for most of May and June. Um, and I really saw an Elise that I haven't seen in a while. Um, so I think for me, it's really exciting to maybe see what she can do there. Uh, Labu as well was someone that I saw get stronger every day in the Giro. I think um, she finished really strong. Like I think that last day where she could stay with Annemiek and with Gaia on that last stage. I think it's always a good sign when you finish a tour strongly versus being absolutely on your knees and sort of creeping to the to the finish line. So I think she's someone that, that can be up there as well. Um, I think Shabby and Uadoma, they're going to be interesting contenders to see what they can do, whether they can match it with those two, maybe on the Aspin. But I think, yeah, the Tourmalet is a whole other beast. It's going to be, I don't know, an hour of climbing or more plus up at altitude. So I think that's really going to affect things as well. Um and I guess the other the other riders are like Cavalli, Utrecht Ludwig, um, Music, French team, a bit more pressure. You know, everyone, they've been quite vocal that this is the race where they want to perform and they have the pressure to do so from, I guess, the sponsors as well. So that's going to be quite interesting how they go. Um, they didn't really show a lot in the Giro. I think I was expecting a bit more from them in the Giro. So, I mean, Cecily looked like she was finishing strongly, but um, I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic to watch there. Brady, you said you reconned this climb. Can you tell us a bit about what it's like, particularly at the top there? My memories of it are that it gets pretty steep and pretty unforgiving towards the top. Um, no, quite easy because I was um, holding on to the, to the car. Of, um, <laughs> no, we were there with Ina and it was the day after the welter and I was holding on to the car for some of it. True story, must admit. No, no. <laughs> no, no, but it's, it, it is hard. Um, I, that was that was the lower slopes for those listeners. Um, I did actually ride the top part by myself with Elisa. Um, pretty much from, you're right, it gets really hard towards the top, um, especially we sort of go through the Tourmalet village and then it's about 4K to the top. And that last 4K, it's getting steeper. We're getting higher altitude up to 2,100 metres. So you've got the 
the fact that it's at the end of 17 kilometres, it's getting steeper, you're getting a higher altitude. I think all those factors really play a part. And I think we're going to see some riders that can hang on, hang on, hang on. And then we get to that village or just before the village when we're sort of going through the, the tunnel area where all of a sudden they'll just pop and they just can't hold it. Um, so I think we're really going to see there the riders that have good fatigue resistance and even those riders that have been at preparing at altitude, I think it's going to be a big advantage at that point, which, I mean, I have to say is basically most of the GC contenders. So um, I think, and uh, I watched with great interest as well the, the men's stage when they went up the tourmalay and we saw there, like, um, everyone was together and all of a sudden Jumbo just lifted the pace and then it was just, like, explosion. So I think you can see just even changes in pace at that point. Um, and um, that that point into a climate at that altitude can really just explode the bunch in a second. Poof, I'm so excited for that stage. All right, final stage oh, yeah. is a 22.6-kilometer-long time trial in Poe. I'm so excited to go back here. I wonder if there will be some crazy things that happen. There always is, right? That's like the joke of the the men's tour, that weird stuff always happens in Poe. Oh, wow, I didn't know that. Most of it's doping-related, so hopefully not on the women's side, but like, it's, weird stuff does happen. So... It's a pretty straightforward time trial, relatively like flat-ish with one lump in the middle of it. Uh, looking at this one, it's a little bit of a kick to the line, so it's not flat at the end, but it's still like your straightforward time trial. And given how little time trial, li given how infrequent it is that we have time trials in a major stage race on the women's side, I feel like this is one that the time trial specialists will really be eyeing given that Worlds is coming up like a week after this race. So if there's a stage that SC Works is going to fully let Marlon Russo off the leash, it's going to be this stage. But I also think like Grace Brown is coming into this with a huge tar with this being a huge target. And Rihanna Marcus, for me, is one of my favorite riders for this stage, um, having just won the Dutch National Championship time trial. And has she's just been phenomenal this year. I'm, like, so excited about the progress that she's made. But I think it's going to be... It's going to be a really interesting stage. I'm not convinced that it's going to change the GC, given how hard the tourmalade is going to be, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I think it's... For those who um, watched the course, actually, when we had it in Po, I think it was 2018, 2019, it's almost, um, it's the reverse of basically what we raced in, in that edition almost. So that sort of kick to the line is is almost the same road up back oh, up wait, to Po. Oh, wait, I but, raced that. So actually, I know exactly where the course is. That's exciting. Yeah, just the, <laughs> the second half is on a road parallel, but the first half is sort of backwards of what we raced on. So it cool. feels a little bit, little bit familiar, but um. It'll be interesting. I think the one sort of longer time trial we've had in a stage race this year was in Tour of Swiss on day two of Tour of Swiss in June. And and there the gaps were quite big. I mean, um, Russo won that. Demi was quite close behind Elisa there. But then riders like Labou lost almost two minutes there. I lost two minutes. Um, you know, the, the time gaps were actually quite considerable. So, um, again, I think the Tourmalade, there'll be big gaps there, but it, it could change, maybe not the top two in the GC, but it could sort of shuffle around that sort of top 10 in GC, I think. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it would be pretty cool if the race is decided by the time trial, I think. It'd be nice if it was close coming into the that final stage. Um, but yeah, we'll have to, have to wait and see, I guess. It, just about anything could happen on stage seven, I think. That's one way to make a time trial interesting, is have the GC come down to the time trial. For the naysayers, I love a time trial. I people who are like, "Oh man, I hate time trials and stage races." I don't agree. I'm, I love a time trial I, and stage race. I like I like time trials and stage races. I think they belong, but I don't I don't love having them at the last stage. Fair, but I mean, That's if it's going to be as exciting as the men's Tour de France has been with the time trial stage there, then perhaps I'll eat my words afterwards if it does, if it really does come down to the time trial about who who wins it, but. I Where like that you have a road stage and finishing. I think the second last day is nice. Okay. Sometimes I get a bit jealous of like the men's tour de France when they all just drink champagne on the last day and cruise and joking <laughs> and having fun. And then you're like, oh, we never have a stage like that. The way serious, full stress. <laughs> we don't have Maybe. those, you know, parades around Paris. We don't have those sort of stages in women's cycling. Maybe someday you'll have a 21 stage race and you can parade around Paris. Yeah, I just want to drink champagne on my bike. I've never done that. Bucket list. 
I think we've, yeah, we've covered pretty much everything with the stages and we've also gotten a bit into the GC and the green jersey as well in everything that we just talked about. Um, And I think, Spratty, you did an awesome job touching on some other riders that are going to be in the GC conversation, even if they're not fighting for that top step. I I feel like we talk a lot about how this is kind of a two-horse race, but that's there's a lot of riders that are in the third place area that I think could surprise and still have a chance of taking this race. Like bike racing is crazy and anything can happen. So, and especially the tour. So I think that there's, there's a lot of other riders that are really exciting. Kashini Wadoma, who was third overall last year, she was strong at tour de Swiss, even if she had a bad time trial and I, and she's been training at altitude and really preparing for the tour specifically. So I think that she's going to be a really exciting one to watch, but she also has a couple teammates that are super interesting. Ricarda Bauernfeind, who had an amazing Vuelta, I think is one that should not be overlooked. And in terms of like the sprinting slash ruler type stages, Micah Vanderdoon is a really exciting rider. She like bursts onto the scene at the tour last year and had a really exciting ride there, which basically secured her, her world tour contract. So I'm excited to see those three riders. SC works as usual, have their entire team looks, looks super exciting. (laughs) Um, like a really, they just always come with a completely insane lineup. Um, Spratty, you mentioned FDJ Suez with Sile and and Marta Cavalli, who's kind of coming back into form. But I think one rider to mention from them is Los Adahis, who was just named to the Dutch World's team and won Cadell's earlier in the year, but has has proven that she really deserves a spot in the world tour. She's got a super interesting story. And I think for her going into this race, I'm hoping to see the French team give her like a little bit of freedom to try to go for some stages. Yeah, and I think I think with her like stages like the tricky stages we've spoken about, stages two, stage stage four, where we're sort of looking at those finals and and thinking the teams with more numbers and being able to play the numbers once once it gets really hard, especially like stage four, that those last forty K. And I think at some point as an as an opposing team, you have to look at at the riders and think, okay, this rider attacks Cavalli knows or Trouble Ludwig no, like we don't want them to go, and then Adikis goes and then you have to make that decision, okay she's not the first rider we're going to chase. So I think in, in that respect, she it's a benefit for her to be in such a strong team. And I think she will, if the, if the team allow her, I think she will actually find a bit more freedom than some of her other teammates. Abby, you mentioned Marta Cavalli there. I'm, I'm really curious to watch her over the next week and a bit. She obviously had that horrible crash at last year's race. And, you know, it's basically taken her up until the last little while to get back to form and, and all that. And I'm... Really hoping she has a good race. She won the Tour of the Pyrenees a month or so back and won on the Otakam. So we know she's climbing pretty well. Um, I, I hope that that translates into a good race for her. And uh, she's such an exciting rider. And it's a shame that she's been basically out of action for a good chunk of the last year. Agreed. She's one of my favorite riders. I'm I'm not quiet about it. Because I've interviewed her before and she was like really cool. And I think that that just like, I don't know, influences my favorite list. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I feel like there's, there's like four more writers that we should mention before we wrap up the episode. There's a lot of really exciting writers, but I wrote a extremely extensive contenders preview that's on escapecollective.com. So you can check that out to read all about the contenders for the race. We haven't mentioned Mariana Voss, um, who, I I have to fact check myself. I said in last week's episode that she hasn't won a stage of the she hasn't gone to the Giro and not won a stage to, since 2006. Actually, she's never gone to the Giro and not won a stage. So this is the first time she's ever raced the Giro and not won a stage. But as you pointed out, Matt, she was riding incredibly well at the Vuelta. So. I'm really curious to see how she goes in this race. I think there are some stages that look good for her and she's obviously going to want to win, but I'm, but I also just have no idea where her form is at. If I was betting, I would, I would put money on her winning at least one stage and being in the green jersey at some point, maybe, although it's a bit trickier this year with, with Weavis, maybe, I, I don't know. I think she'll win a stage. She just, she doesn't, She's not a rider that is down for long. 
I don't think. And she gets that fire in her belly. And after the Giro, the disappointment there, I I just find it very hard to imagine her not having a pretty sizable impact on the race in some way. Yeah, I totally agree on that. And I think just the fact of how tricky and technical most of the stages are, she's a rider that will just be saving energy the whole time. She can very comfortable in the peloton. She won't waste an ounce of energy. So I think she'll turn up fresher to a lot of those finals than many other riders. Yeah, that's a great point. I think we should also mention Sylvia Persico, who had an incredible tour last year and is one of Matt's favorite riders. And she's not had as good a season this year as last year, but I still think that she's an incredible rider to watch and will be one of UAE's top riders. I also feel like Lizzie Holden is worth a mention. Um, She just won the TT at the British National Championships, and she's been having a great season. And she's like quite she's got quite a quite a story as well when it comes to her history in the sport so i think between her persico chiara consoni who won the last stage of the giro and also erica mcnaldi who was riding super well at the giro uae has a really interesting lineup for the race they've also got gasparini as well who won a stage of tour de suisse so yeah very strong lineup with a lot of cards to play in a bunch of different terrain and uh, yeah, like you said, Sylvia Persico is one of my favorites. I just loved her tour last year. She was, I don't know, a top 10 on just about every stage and in the sprints, on the climbs, she was everywhere. So um, I can't wait to see what she gets up to this time around. Yeah, and I think her ability to suffer is um, up there with some of, some of the best. I think sometimes you see her in the race and you think, oh, she's gone, and then she just creeps away back there. And she just, I think her her suffer level is extremely high, and that's why we see her there in so many scenarios. So I totally agree. I think, again, the technical nature will really suit her. And I feel like Magnaudi, they'll probably save more for that tourmaline day and see what she can do there. Two more riders worth a mention, and that's Ashley Moon Passio, who is another one who's been targeting this race specifically and didn't race the Giro, which I was actually surprised to see. And then uh, Veronica Ewers, who finished fourth overall at the Giro, and this was her breakthrough race of 2022 as well. So I think going into this, she's she's a rider who's going to need to be really careful in the first six stages not to waste energy before stage seven but I think the way she climbs I'm excited to see how she does kind of stacked up against the best in the world at this race we also have no idea how she time trials like I have no idea (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think firstly with Mormon I think for sure I think she's been quite vocal in having targeted this race for a while and I think particularly after tour of Romandy last year where she actually uh, dropped Anamique. I think she gained a lot of confidence from that on the sort of longer climbs. So I think she'll be coming in here with a lot of motivation. I think with skipping the Giro, I think we saw more riders doing that this year. I think if anything, next year when we have the Giro in, we have the Giro in July and we have the Tour de France at the end of August next year. So I think we're going to see more riders doing both next year. But for this year, I think that's just that's just how it is. Um, but with Ewers, yeah, she was super impressive in the Giro. I think also smart the way she was able to attack and gain that time and have Anamique and Elisa come to her. I think she showed that was a really smart move from her. I think my impression from her is that she puts a lot of pressure on herself. So I hope that she can sort of take a little bit of that off and just like focus on the process each day and, and go through that. I think the technical nature will be a bit challenging for her, but I think she has some some good teammates. So yeah, I think she's definitely a, a really exciting rider, and it's pretty mind blowing to think that I think what is this her second her second full season of the World Tour, and she's already doing this. Like sometimes I hope that she just sits back and realizes that that's pretty that's pretty incredible. Not many people can uh, do that. Yeah, I think her first UCI race was like at the end of 2021, and then one yeah. year later she finished ninth overall at the Tour. It's just like amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible, honestly. <laughs> and then at a time when the, the level is just so high, it's not, you know, yeah. no win comes easily, no podium comes easily in the in the peloton these days. All right, let's wrap up the episode. And I didn't I didn't prep Spratty on how we finish finish the episodes. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> okay, so we finish each episode with talking about something that we've been obsessed with lately. What I've been obsessed with lately is it's been like crazy hot in Europe. And up in Andorra, there's like a bunch of streams and stuff. And so I have been obsessed with trying to find like a good swim spot, Um, a spot that's deep enough in the river that you can like kind of get up to your neck, uh, but isn't like 
it's hard to find because everything it's not, there's not really like river rivers. So I found like a really good swim spot, like 10 minute walk from our apartment. And that's what I've been obsessed with lately. That's pretty good. I think uh, mine's like my obsession, I guess, is a bit the opposite or I could use like a cold stream to counteract my obsession. Um, I've just come off altitude a week ago. So my recent obsession has been with just trying to be as hot as possible when I can just to get used to the heat. We've got a heat wave heat wave in um, Europe at the moment it's getting nudging almost 40 degrees and so I've been at altitude at I don't know around 20 so I'm trying to go out riding in the heat um yeah leave for training at 1 2 p.m be as hot as possible um yesterday I did ergo inside with the window shut and just sweat up a storm so sounds a bit strange but um it all comes down to performance and being used to the heat so that's my um uh, spontaneous obsession thought for now Sorry, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Mine is not exciting. Um, this is just off the top of my head. But um, so I'm based in Melbourne, in Australia, and watching European bike races, uh, as you'll know, Spratty is absolute <laughs> pain when you're in Australia. Um, and so for years, I've tried to work out how best to do it. You know, do you do you just stay up the whole day and stay up till two a.m. or whatever, or do you? You know, you go to bed and you wake up. Um, I used to just do the stay up method and that's a little bit harder now with a young one who's nearly two years old uh, getting up nice and early, you know, getting four hours sleep a night doesn't really work. Um, but I found a, a technique that I reckon works really well for me anyway, which is go to bed around 10 o'clock, get an hour, an hour and a half sleep, wake up 11.30 around midnight for the last hour and a half of the tour. Perfect. You get back to sleep after that, no worries, wake up at a reasonable time and manage to string it together for most of the tour and, and feel like I can get through it. So it's a bit of a nightmare and getting to sleep early is a little bit tricky, but I think it, I found a technique that works for me now and it's, it's taken years to get to that point. So I'm very happy. No wonder Aussies are so obsessed with the Australian racing summer. You can actually watch races at <laughs> oh, a reasonable so time. <laughs> Yeah. But it's like exactly. my, my parents are normally up on mum will message me and say she was up li- lying in bed watching GCN on a on a phone and dad can't dad's eyes are too bad for the phone so he's up on his computer in the middle of the night watching it. And then if anything exciting's happened in the race then they can't sleep for hours afterwards. And oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think being like Matt and finding a good technique must be the best solution. <laughs> oh man. No nobody over in Europe or the US knows how hard it is to be an Australian cycling fan. Yeah, until the Worlds were in Wollongong last year, right? And then everyone was complaining about it. And we're oh. like, we'll see. See how hard it is? See how hard we have it? I was so happy and just it just made me smile <laughs> when they were complaining. I'm like, see, yeah, yeah. it's about time you realized. <laughs> <laughs> Soon, Matt, you'll get to watch the race on the ground in France because we'll be there. I can't, I'm like never so going to shut up about it because I'm like really excited. But yeah, we'll be there next week and I'll be able to say the names of the towns at least a little bit for the daily podcast stay tuned for that spratty thank you so much for your input it's been incredible thank you no thank you and i'll see you on the ground which will be exciting